Welcome back. Last week, we talked about attachment and especially attachment as it relates to uh, romantic relationships um, with partners and, and spouses and things like that. Uh, and today we're going to talk about attachment a little bit more. Uh, but today we're going to talk about it in terms of parenting, which is sort of the traditional way in which we think about attachment. Um, but we're going to present it in a way sort of developmentally, uh, because we have talked for many many years now about the idea of, you know, practice attachment parenting. And then that we have this other, um, other thing that we refer to as detachment parenting. Right. We're going to talk about that process today. Right. Yeah. We, um, as you say, last week, we talked about intimate or romantic relationships and how your attachment affects that relationship. And this week we're going to talk about a different aspect of attachment, and that is the attachment between a parent and a child. Right. And while it's absolutely essential that parents have a strong and secure attachment with their children, or that, or that more precisely, children develop a mature attachment to their parents, mm-hmm. that at some point you have to uncouple, you have to detach from your parents because you need to become independent. At some point, in, in those years, um, you need to become more independent and less reliant on your parents. Absolutely. And, and so I'm glad that you, you mentioned it that way with it, the more specific, uh, the attachment between the child to the parent, because you know, I think it's something that we should start off with, the difference between attachment and bonding, right? Exactly. So right. Um, you know, when a child is born, one of the reasons that they immediately put the child uh, onto the mother and you get that skin to skin contact um, is it, it releases oxytocin and oxytocin helps form this bond between the, the mother right. and, the, and the, and the newborn. Um, and it's one of the reasons why fathers are encouraged to be in the delivery room at the same time as the baby's born, because now the, the father can hopefully hold the baby immediately. Right very quickly too, uh, because it does the same thing for him. And, mm-hmm. and that, that bond is, is really, is chemical. Um, it is uh, biological and, and it is a bond that forms so that, uh, because the baby is um, defenseless, um, the baby can't do anything for itself. And so it's really important that that bond happens because that creates this drive within the parent to take mm-hmm. care and nurture and protect the baby. Um, it's one of the reasons why back in the olden days, olden days, um, when they would put babies in the nurseries and the parents would go up and like look through the window to see the baby, it's like the parent could almost always immediately identify their baby mm-hmm. uh, amongst all these babies that look pretty similar. Um, right. For the most part, a lot of babies look pretty similar, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you've only known it for a few hours. Um you can identify your baby, but it's because of that bond that can, that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when you say, yeah, you, you say it's chemical. Uh, there are other studies that are done that um, if you put a mother in a nursery and blindfold her, she can smell her baby. She right. will identify her child by its smell. And, mm-hmm. you know, you think, how, do you, how does that happen? That's that chemical bond. Right. It occurs um, immediately following the birth of that baby. You right. That, and it's, and it's crazy to think about because, again, you've only known the, the baby for a, a few minutes to a few hours, right. maybe. Um, but yet you have that connection. And See, so that is the bond, though. Right. 
Right. Well, the attachment is something that develops over time, that, that develops over the first year or so of life. And again, this is an evolutionary thing as well, because, you know, unlike ducks that, you know, imprint on the, the first thing that it sees after right. it's hatched, um, infants have to be able to adapt uh, to different caregivers because, um, you know, up until relatively recently and, and continuing in some areas of the world today, you know, the, the risk for the mother um, to die during childbirth is pretty high. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if the baby was um, imprinted on the mother the same way that a duck does, if the mother died um, following delivery, right. then the baby would die because the baby would not be able right. to take care of itself and wouldn't connect to anyone else. So, um, so attachment takes a little bit of time and it is the relationship from the child that the child forms with the parent. Right. That's right. And, but bonding is the first step right. in the attachment process. Now, <clears throat> over time, and we talked last week about John Bowlby mm -hmm. and Mary Ainsworth, um, they were the ones who sort of laid the foundation for our understanding of attachment. And um, Mary Ainsworth um, talked about three types of attachment, secure, and, um, and then there were some insecure attachments. Now, fortunately, a little more than half of us have secure attachments, right. okay? And secure attach by secure attachments, we mean the ability to uh, form secure and loving relationships with others. Um, a secure attachment allows us to love others, to trust others, and to depend on others, but not becoming dependent on them, okay? So you rely on people, um, and you let people help you, but you don't become dependent on that. And then she listed, she listed two types of insecure attachment. And since she did her work, a third type of insecure attachment has been added. Right. Yeah. So there's the insecure anxious. Um, and, and this is uh, a, an infant or a, a toddler that has a, a deep fear of uh, being abandoned. And right. so, um, you know, it creates this tremendous anxiety, anxiousness within the, within the child. Um, insecure avoidant um, is, is sort of a fear of the intimacy. And so we talked last week about the, you know, Mary Ainsworth's um, strange situation. And what she would do is she, she would create like a waiting room type of scenario and have a, a mother or a parent bring in the infant um, or toddler and put them down and they would play with some toys and everything. Um, and then a stranger would come in and sit across the room um, and they would monitor how the baby, mm -hmm. the child responds to the stranger. And then without any words, without saying anything, the mother or parent would get up and leave, leaving the child in the room mm -hmm. with the stranger. Mm -hmm. And they would look to see how the child responds. Um, most kids um, would become uh, discomfort, have experienced some discomfort, they would cry, they'd get upset, wanted their mom to come back or their parent to come back. Um, but the real interesting stuff happens once the parent comes back um, and you look right. at how the child responds. Um, those that are insecure, anxious, what they do is they, um, when the parent comes back, the child is very difficult to console and they become very can, like latch on to the mother and, and really refuses to be put back down, <laughs> wants to be left alone again. Um, whereas the securely attached child 
after they're comforted for a minute, you can put them back down and they go back to playing. Um, right. They know that the parent is going to be there to take care of them. That anxious kid becomes very um, clingy and those kinds of things. Whereas the avoidant um, becomes angry really with the parent, the parent can pick right. them up and they're still distressed, but they'll sort of push away from the parent and they'll, mm-hmm. they'll see those kids that you hold um, when they're upset with their parent and they'll lean their back, they'll arch their back backwards and like trying to create distance between them and the parent. And right. that's what they refer to as the avoidance style. Right. And then there's the third that right. came later. Um, that was done a little bit after Mary Ainsworth did her work. And they said, there's this one group of kids. They're really disorganized. I mean, they're anxious, they're avoidant, they're a little bit of everything. Yeah. Um, that's a much more um, serious type of insecure attachment. Right. But you can, you can see how these attachment types would evolve from how the child is managed in the first year of life. Right. You mentioned it, they're completely helpless. They're completely dependent on their parent. And children whose needs are being met, infants whose needs are being met, seem to develop a secure attachment. They, they, they cry when they're cold. They cry when they're wet. They cry when they're hungry. They cry when, they're, when they need a diaper change. They cry when they're somehow um, uncomfortable in some way. Mm-hmm. They're experiencing discomfort. And when those needs are met by a nurturing parent, right. the child develops a security that someone's going to take care of me. I, I'm confident that somebody will take care of me. When I'm crying, I'm crying for a good reason. And so my parents will come and pick me up and make sure I'm okay. Right. Um, parents, uh, children who are abandoned or neglected, um, they develop an insecure attachment. Okay, so you can see the relationship between bonding right. and attachment. And these infants who are cared for and their needs are met, they develop an, an sort of an internal security because their world is predictable and they know that whatever they need, their needs are going to be met. Absolutely. And it's in, in our, in our book, our, our parenting book, we, we wrote about the idea of, um, you know, the, the infant, the, it, there's all of these questions and, and new parents especially are often asked these questions about mm-hmm. what do, how do we respond to, you know, right. infant birth to birth to one or so, um, the first 12 months of life or so, how do we respond to them when they're crying, when they are, we lay them down for bed and, and they're, they're crying or, or something like that. And it's our perspective that, that, that you, you meet that child's needs. Um, you know, the, the infant isn't trying to manipulate, you know, after, after about a year of, of, of age or so, you know, kids can get into this thing where they know that if they, you lay them down, they can keep getting up or, or something. Um, of course, by then they're walking and stuff. So it's easier for them to get up and, and come into the other room and all. But um, that first year, it's really important for the parent to respond to the needs of the child. And so if the child is upset, we work to comfort and soothe them. And, um, and this is that attachment style of parenting where, you know, you, you really work to meet the child's needs so that the, the child is really comfortable and confident that if they have a need, that need is going to be met. Right. Um, and, and that is that's really critical during that first year of life. Yeah, the phrase we always use is you can't spoil an infant. Right. Okay? An infant is birthed to about a year of age. Right. 
defines as infancy. And you, you can't spoil, they, they don't have the cognitive structures to take advantage of you. They're not doing it on purpose and you're not gonna spoil them by meeting their needs. It's just not gonna happen. Okay. So we see the beginning of attachment with uh, parent-infant bonding. Mm -hmm. um, they develop this close, trusting relationship. So then you enter the second year of life and then you begin a journey. Uh, you, I'm talking to parents now. Parents begin a journey of attaching, of, of, of strengthening that attachment with their, with their children. And attachment now, from now until the child is an adult, attachment now is a two-step process. Right. And it's absolutely essential that parents begin to see attachment in these two phases. In the first phase, we practice what is called attachment parenting. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk, we're going to walk through that attachment parenting. But about the time that a child enters puberty, and that can be 11, 12, 13. So we're talking about what we call tweeners mm -hmm. between childhood and adolescence. By about middle school. And, and, and teenagers. So we're talking about kids about the age of middle schoolers. And I think... I think middle school is a perfect time to begin the process of detachment parenting. There's a bunch of reasons for that, which we'll get into later. But if you think of a child from birth to fifth grade, the end of fifth grade, the end of elementary school, that's attachment parenting. From middle school on, you need to practice detachment parenting. It's a whole different skill set, whole different set of challenges. So let's walk through the first phase, which we would call attachment parenting. Yeah. And if, as you said, that starts <clears throat> immediately. You know, at, at birth, we have that bond and that bond um, really connects the parent to the child. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if you're, you're thinking about it as sort of a, 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 a curve, you know, this is where we're almost at our highest peak here um, for right. the need for attachment, for building attachment and engaging in attachment parenting. And this is so we're really working hard during these first five years, like up until the time they're getting into kindergarten, we're really working hard to, to ensure that the child knows that their needs are going to be met. Um, of course, we're going to be mindful not to be manipulated and, and tricked as the kid gets into right. the toddler years. We're going to be careful about how we respond to the terrible twos and tantrums and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, we're making sure that the child is safe we're making sure that the child's needs are met. We're making sure that the child doesn't have any, um, any concern that if they are in danger or if they need help, that help is going, you know, any concern that, that help won't be, won't be there. That's right. um, and it's, it's wild because sometimes you can talk to parents or talk to adults, you know, we have adult patients and you can ask them about that, you know, Hey, early in life, if you needed help, you know, who would you call? And they don't have anyone. Right. Um, and they, they say they, you know, they're not sure that their mom would have been there to help them. They, their dad, you know, maybe wasn't around. Um, and so they didn't have that person there. And, and it's the person could, the, the patient could be 50 years old, but they can remember even those first early years of life that there was just no one there. Right. Um, because it has that profound of an effect. So it's really critical during these, these years that we create that attachment. That's right. And so for this first phase of attachment parenting, we can say birth to five, 
what the parent is doing is essentially getting the child ready to leave, uh, to go to kindergarten. Right. right? And so to, to go to kindergarten, the child has to be fairly secure of leaving the house mm-hmm. and knowing that someone's going to be there when they get home. Right. Okay. Um, and this is where you get separation anxiety. You know, right. those kids who scream violently when they're, when they're made to go to school, that suggests that there's an insecure attachment, that the kid right. is not sure what's going to happen. Okay. And, and so right. we're talking about a five-year-old who goes to kindergarten and they cry and they cry and they cry because they, they have trouble separating from a parent, not because they love the parents so much, but it's because there's an insecure attachment there because they're not sure what's going to happen. Right. And, and you see that um, per, it's, it's more pervasive. Okay. So mm-hmm. a, a lot of kindergartners, a lot of first time to schoolers, um, right. those first few days are tough. You know, a lot of kids cry um, when they're first dropped off, but mm-hmm. those kids who, who are secure, the teachers will tell you within a couple of minutes, they are just fine. Um, they, they adapt and they get right into things and they're having a good time and they're enjoying school. Um, those kids with insecure attachments, they, and they, they tend to be okay as the day progresses, but it takes them a bit longer in the right. morning to get settled and to recover from that separation. And, mm-hmm. um, those kids with secure attachments, that discomfort first thing in the morning, you might see that maybe the first week or so of school. Um, and then you might see it again, like after big breaks, um, like after the first Thanksgiving break or after the first winter break or something like that, but it goes away. Um, those kids who had those insecure attachments, it lasts longer. Um, it could last weeks. Um, and then when you come back from Thanksgiving and winter break, it happens again. Um, and it happens again for the beginning of first grade. Um, so it doesn't, that doesn't go away as easily for those insecure, insecurely attached kids. That's right, but but you can see you can see the role that attachment, secure right. versus insecure, plays even in these young children. Um, then you have the period from the school, elementary school, kindergarten through the fifth grade, and we're going to use that period to get ready for adolescence. Now, remember, when you get to adolescence, we're going to have to detach. So we're going to spend much of our energy as parents in the elementary school years is about maintaining this very strong attachment mm-hmm. because you are going to be close to your children. Your children are going to be close to their teachers. You know, this is when, um, you know, you, you, you have kids talk, uh, they'll, they'll run up to the teacher and say, mommy, look what I did. And because the teacher sort of replaces the mother and you get this very close relationship between children and their teachers. So K through fifth grade elementary school is the transition. Now, there are two milestones that help you gauge what you should be doing and where you should be moving your children, where where your children should be. And the first one is at the end of third grade. Mm -hmm. At the end of third grade, children should have all of their speech sounds, Mm -hmm. even the R sound, Mm -hmm. um, is is managed by, is, is acquired by the third grade. So you have all of your speech sounds have been acquired. Second, you should be reading at grade level. And this is why we give that famous high stakes test is at the end of third grade, because by the end of third grade, you should be reading at grade level. Um, You should also know your multiplication tables, although 
with the new math curriculum, there may, we may not memorize the tables. Your right. children may not memorize the tables the way you did when you were in school. Yeah. But that would be another achievement. Right. And then the last one is they should be developing emotional regulation. Right. They should have developed emotional regulation. No more temper tantrums, no more flinging, no more flailing, no more uh, emotional outbursts. All of those um, signs of internal struggle that gets expressed as um, a temper tantrum uh, should have all waned. They should all be gone by now. Okay. So those are the things that should be accomplished by the end of third grade. Yeah. By the end of fifth grade, we've moved through all of elementary school. And you notice in elementary school how about third grade, kids have then two teachers. And by fifth grade, they might have three different teachers. So, so you can feel the transition moving toward uh, middle school. So by the end of fifth grade, if we've done our job as parents, kids are pretty, should be pretty self-sufficient. Right. They should know where their belongings are. They should know where their backpack is. They should know what's in their backpack. Um, they're, they're organized. They know where their clothes are. They know where their shoes are. They're not losing things. All that should happen because we have been close to these kids. We've stayed close to them throughout elementary school. This is the time when kids start doing sports. Right. You know, and the parents go to the games. They go to the practices. They, they stay close to their kids. Uh, and the kids have to learn how to keep track of their athletic equipment. Okay? Right. This is all the stuff that we do by the end of fifth grade. Yeah, like I, I, I tend to think of this time as it's sort of direct instruction for independence. It's like exactly. I'm going to exactly. teach you. I'm going to teach you how to be independent. Right, uh, that's what this is about. Right, we're not expecting them to be independent yet because that's going to come next. But we're teaching them how to be independent. Exactly. So, right. so we're offering those reminders. Hey, remember you need to do this because we're hoping that you know, within a couple of years, you're going to remember to do it on your own. And I'll have right. to remind you. Uh, so, you, you know, that's direct instruction for that independence during the attachment phases, because we have that relationship with them. Right. That's right. But as you said, you know, by the time we're getting into middle school, things have to start to shift. <laughs> right. Because it, I mean, you think about, you think about the difference between the environment of the fifth grader experiences they're, they're at the top of their middle school. They're in charge. Elementary. Uh, they're running everything. They're, they have secure attachments with their teachers. They know the other kids in the school. They know their teachers. It, it's almost a family kind of atmosphere in, the, in early elementary school. They're going to get thrown into the deep end of a very cold pool when they're in sixth grade. Because right. now they're going to have maybe six teachers. And they're going to be changing classes. And right. it's a huge transition, a huge jump from the security of fifth grade to the um, chaos of sixth grade. Yeah, I, um, so in working in the schools, I have, I have, I'm assigned to three primary, mainly three schools, um, two elementary schools and a middle school. And, and the difference between the elementary schools and the middle school is immeasurable. I mean, there, there is almost nothing similar between the two. Um, from them, just from the campus to the way that people, the way the students talk to the way that the, this, the teachers talk. I mean, everything right. changes because there's that expectation that by the time they're in sixth grade, 
these kids can do a lot of the things on their own. They can manage a lot of these things on their own. And um, in good grief, by the time they get in high school, the expectation is that they will manage these things on their own because it, right. schools don't even want to really talk to parents once you right. get to high school. Right. You know, there was a reason why we called it junior high school a long time ago, years ago, um, because it was supposed to be sort of transitional. But if you think about it, a sixth grade classroom, a sixth grade, the sixth grade, is it more like high school or is it more like elementary school? Right. And it's sixth grade is far more like a high school experience than yeah. it is a fifth grade experience. Okay. So we say middle school. But boy, middle school looks an awful lot like high school. So yeah. when these kids jump from fifth grade to sixth grade, that is a huge jump. It's a huge leap that they're taking. Yeah, I, I think that um, in many ways, I think I I preferred the the old old way of doing it, where it was K through six was at elementary, seven, eight, nine were junior high, right, and then 10, 11, 12 was high school because. It, it allowed an easier transition. You know, those kids got a little bit mm-hmm. older before they were put into that situation. Um, right. the seventh graders are different. It, I mean, seventh graders are different than sixth graders. A, um, a huge it, difference. It's right. just one year, but my goodness, you can see the difference um, right. on campus. Um, you can see the difference between a sixth grader and a seventh grader. Right. And, and the reason is, is because the magic that happens from fifth grade to sixth grade is puberty. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, that's the enormous change that occurs. And we know that the early years after puberty, now puberty can be anywhere. I mean, girls enter long before boys, but we're talking about sometime between age 10 or 11 and age 15 or 16. Right. Okay, so it's a huge even younger. Right, it could be younger. Um, but Puberty is different from adolescence. Adolescence is a time frame. Puberty is a biological change. But the first couple of years of adolescence are clearly the most difficult. When, when you hit puberty, doesn't matter what age you are, there's this massive change that occurs in your brain. And that does make you act and think in strange ways. And, but, but we see that when we talk about difficult teenage behaviors, we're talking about the first couple of years after puberty. We're not talking about when they're 17 and 18, okay? Because they stabilize over those years. So first of all, when you make this transition in middle school, you have to survive those, the shock of, of the changes that occur in your children once they hit puberty. Right. That's a huge shock, okay? I, I think that one of the big differences is you know, in elementary school, the everything is sort of prepared ahead of time for the student. Um, That's you know, right. The parents and the teachers, and they, they call that the snowplow, right? The snowplow goes in front of you and it just kind of clears the snow out of the way. So right. forward. Whereas by the time they're getting into middle school, um, the adults, the teachers and, and uh, parents, for the most part, tend to serve more as a safety net. They, they tend right. to catch them if they fall, but the expectation is you're going to stand on your own. I'm going to re- I want you to repeat that because middle school, parents have to transition from being a snowplow, clearing the path for their kids. Right. And you're there now just as a safety net. Right. Because your kid is now moving out on his or her own. And the most you should do now 
is to be that safety net when they do fail, when they do disappoint, when they do fall short. You're there to serve as a safety net, okay? To, to pick up the pieces and start over again. Your days of being a snowplow should be behind you. Right. Yeah. You shouldn't be preparing away. Absolutely. And, and it's necessary that that change happens because, um, again, now we're moving into that direction of detachment parenting. So no longer is it that you are doing everything for your child. No longer is it that you're trying to stay strongly connected. We don't want our kids to be dependent upon us um, at all, but especially during these years, because now is when they need to become more independent um, and, and gaining these skills on their own. So, you know, middle school is a, you know, for as challenging of a time as it is, this is a really critical time for students to experience some things that we don't want them to have to deal with later, like disappointment, like failure. Um, you know, parents work so hard to continue to be a snowplow during um, the, the middle school years, and they, they try to take care of everything for their kid. And then by the time they get in high school or, or college or whatever, um, the kid can't do anything for themselves. They can't, they can't handle disappointment. They can't handle failure because they, they've never had to experience it before. Right. You know, as parents, we, we understand the urge. So we're talking about middle school kids now. We understand the urge to continue supporting and helping your children so that they get the best grades that they can. We get that. And that's a, that's a laudable, um, worthwhile goal, is for your kids to get good grades in middle school. But it's not the only skill. It's not the only ability right. that they should be acquiring in middle school. Right. One of the other abilities they should acquire in middle school is how to manage failure, how to manage disappointment, how to manage not making the team, not manage losing your friends. Okay? These are also essential abilities that kids should develop during middle school. And if, you, if a parent continues to support to guarantee success, then you're denying your child the opportunity to develop other abilities that they're going to need when they get to adulthood, when they right. get to high school and beyond high school. Right. So middle school is an ideal time for kids to experience disappointment and even to experience failure. If your child is going to fail a class, far better to do it in sixth grade or seventh grade than in 11th grade or 12th grade or in college. Right. It's disappointments, failures, low grades, are forgiven in middle school. It's not going to have lifetime, lifelong consequences. What will have lifelong consequences is that your child learn how to study, learn how to prepare, learn the value of working hard. Right. And they learn that through disappointment and failure. So right. you have to give your, your kids the opportunity to experience not just success, but to, ex how do I, I learn how to handle success, but how do I learn how to handle failure if I've never experienced it? And let's, and let's be clear about something. Um, middle school teachers are not going to be the mothers that elementary school teachers were. They're not going to follow you around, right? So they're, they're not, you know, yes, there, there are things in place in different, in different districts and schools where they, you know, they work to make sure that these students don't fail too badly or, or don't, you know, struggle too much. But they're not going to be the nurturing caring, um, you know, caretakers that the elementary school teachers were. 
That's right. Uh, they're going to have the, the expectation school. that the, the, the student's going to take some responsibility. That's right. The middle school teacher, the expectation is, is that the student will take the responsibility. Yeah. They're not there to provide that kind of elementary school support right. that, that we had a few years before. And, but what parents have to remember is that your child has to make this adjustment to the deep end of the pool, not you. Okay. And your child starts to fall short and there is a tendency for parents to provide more support. Right. Okay. That you go in and, and fill in and we know parents who do work for kids. Okay. We, we know that they do that. That's the parent providing all that scaffolding and support so that the child succeeds academically. That would be the absolute wrong thing to do. Right. This is the time that you have to teach your child how to manage this, not do it for the child. Right. This is a skill deficit. Think of it this way. This is a skill deficit. Your child doesn't know how to do this. So your job is to help your child learn how to manage middle school, not to go to school with your child. Middle school is not something you, you do. It's not, a co, it's not a co-parent. You're not doing this together as a team. You have to get your child ready to do this on his or her own. And you, you have to step back. You right. have got to step back and teach your child how to manage without your support. Right. Because within a couple of years, they go to high school. And in high school, we shift again. We, <laughs> went, from, we went from snowplow to safety net. Mm-hmm. Now we're going from safety net to a launch pad. That's right. That's right. Now the expectation is this is you. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're taking off and you're doing this on your own. And the more that the parent does for the child in middle school, the more of a message the child is going to receive that they can't do it on their own. That's and right. That's one of the, the, the biggest disservices that we do to our kids is we teach them through our actions that we don't believe that they can handle these things on their own. That's right. And another, the, the other thing that when we talk about high school, remember that when they get to high school, they're going to start driving. Right. Okay. And middle school is, is the time that you have to start getting them ready to drive. Right. Okay. And other situations where you won't be there, such as when they go to high school you're going to have far less influence in high school than you had in middle school. You're going to have lots of influence in elementary school, much less in middle school, and even less in high school. So you have to remember that you have to get your child ready to drive. If you want to talk about a milestone, Mm -hmm. remember that you're going to hand the keys to your car, which is a deadly weapon, and you're not going to be there. Right. So if you haven't, instilled in your child these values and trust and know that your child will 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 do whatever will drive safely mm-hmm. okay um, that's what we're that's what we're striving for and 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 this this um, ability to, to take this weapon this this 2,000 pound weapon out on the road with other people um, that's what's going to happen in high school besides all the academic stuff right okay? yeah Absolutely. And, you know, I don't, I'm sure that you've been in this situation as well. I I don't know how many times I have said to parents of of, um, high schoolers, um, 
you you have to stop you know in in two years they're going to be they're going to go away mm-hmm. and and if you're if you're 10th grader if you're 11th grader doesn't know how to wash his clothes doesn't know how to prepare a meal doesn't know how to study doesn't know how to organize his time doesn't know how to study um doesn't know how to talk to a teacher when they have a disagreement, right. a discrepancy right. in, in things. If, if the student doesn't know how to do that stuff by, by high school, <clears throat> the parent is still doing all of those things for them. What is going to happen in college? Uh, the parent is expecting the kid to go to college, mm-hmm. probably for the, you know, I mean, that's what most parents expect, especially if the parent is still intervening with all these things. Right. The parent is, you know, doing so because they want, you know, their kid to do their best. Um, what is going to happen when they go away to college? Or they can, professor they is going to talk to you. Right. I right. teach college. I am not going to talk to the parent of one of my students in college. I'm not going to do it. Although they might want to. They, they may. I, I've been called. Right. I have too. I was shocked the first time a parent got in touch with me. So yeah. Your child's 20 years old. No, I mean, Jesus. There's a time. It comes a time, right? And so now, so that's what we talk about with high school. We, we're now we're going to have to remove the safety net. Mm-hmm. And now we're talking about the launch pad because, like it or not, you may not want to let go of your child when he or she is 18. But after age 18, they are considered adults. In, in the lie, eyes of the law and everything else, they are considered adults. Right. Now, if they have problems, they're on their own. They really are on their own. Right. Nobody's going to con- If your child is 19 and gets in trouble, nobody's going to contact you. Right. Uh, the lawyer might, the, you know, to, to pay the bill. But you're not going to be consulted because this child's considered an adult. They, right. they, this is all on their own now. And we, we talk about the juvenile justice system. Um, that's for kids prior to age 18. Once you get to 18, it's, it's that you're considered an adult and right. no one's going to contact you if your child gets into trouble. Right. So we are talking about in high school, they truly have to become independent. And so the question is, can they do it alone? And I don't care what it is, right. whether it's schoolwork, laundry, cooking, cleaning, um, driving a car, they have to be able to do all of that stuff on their own. Right. You have to let go. You have to detach. And if they don't have the skill, you don't do it for them. You teach them how to do it, how to become independent. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to get the last phase. Right. Right. Exactly. Because if they don't learn it, then if they haven't learned it by then and you can't or aren't teaching it to them directly, Mm -hmm. you you have to do this. You have to learn how to do this, these things. Mm -hmm. And we fall into that you know, that issue that we were seeing more and more of, which is the failure to launch. Those teenagers or individuals who have graduated high school, many times they've graduated college and, and they're still at home. Um, And, and those, um, those individuals are, you know, many times there's lots of different reasons why there's a failure to launch some, some, and some of those reasons are perfectly sure. It Mm -hmm. makes sense, you know, um, but a lot of times it's because they haven't gained the independence that they need to develop. Um, and they're still completely attached to their parents. Right. 
That's right. If if the parents don't start detachment parenting at the beginning of middle school, if you don't, you should put as much energy into detaching as you did to attaching. Right. Okay? It's it's a it's a it's a skill that you have to develop. It's something you do over time, and gradually you let these kids develop independence so that when they're 18, you're confident that when they step out into the world, whatever that world is, it can be marriage, it can be work, it can be the military, it can be college. When they step out of your home and into that world, that you're confident that they're able to do everything they need to do and do it well and to be able to survive. They may call you for advice, perfectly fine. They may ask you questions, perfectly fine, but they're completely capable of doing it on their own. Absolutely. And, and, um, and all of that, like you said, all of that starts in those middle school years. Um, that's right. And if you've done the work to, to have that good attachment to the, with them during those, those earlier years up through elementary school, and then you start that transition in middle school to more detachment, they know right. that they can come to you for help or support if they need it. Right. Um, and you, you know, if you continue to be vigilant and you say, you know, I, I believe in you, you know, maybe try this, maybe try that, mm-hmm. you know, and, but allowing them to venture out and being forgiving and showing grace and mercy when they, when they struggle or when they fall down, you know, by the time they finish high school, they're going to be independent and they're going to be ready to take that next step into adulthood um, to take on their own responsibilities and obligations. And another, another way that you may want to think about this and for many parents, this might be helpful. We spend a great deal of time talking about um, how do I, how do I punish my teenager? And we, frequently we get those questions. What, what's an appropriate punishment? What's an appropriate consequence for their behavior? Um, we tend to be afraid of teenagers because they are energetic and wily and you know, manipulative. Um, and we spend a lot of time and a lot of books written on how do you manage your teenager? Well, yeah, that is important that you, that you help them to control their impulses. But at the same time, you have this other important job to do, and that is to make them independent. So yes, on the one hand, you have some behavior management to do, but on the other hand, a lot of your energy should be put not in thinking about consequences for your teenager, but teaching your teenager how to become more competent. Absolutely. How to become more independent. So rather than punishing them for their misdeeds, um, teach them the things that they need so that they can be independent at 18. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, all right. Well, there are some links in the show notes for uh, a couple of articles, um, some on attachment, um, some on uh, attachment and detachment parenting. Uh, so check those out and, um, you know, let us know if you have any questions for um we're always happy to receive messages from folks uh, and questions and, and whatnot. So with that, I, um, I think that's it for today. We're almost, we're at the end of another month. Yes, we are. Another year. Whether you like it or not. Whether you like it or not. Um, schools in the North will be in session next week, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yep. We start earlier in the South, but um, yeah, schools will be in full swing. Um, Labor Day is coming up and that's usually the dividing line. So if you're uh, about ready to face another school year, we wish you well, do well. Yes, absolutely. Um, But but yeah, yeah, here we go. Here we go again. (laughs) All right. So, all right. Well, that's it for today. Until next time. 
stay happy, stay healthy, and forget to be afraid. 